Coming to you entirely pre-recorded from the garage of solitude in Whitestone, Queens, I am Mario Francisco Robles, and this is episode 179 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Yes, this is going to be another solo episode of the show as we allow Brett to enjoy a little more of his paternity leave from all of this cape shit. And uh, I'm going to hold down the fort here from the garage, which, by the way, this garage almost didn't exist a few moments ago as I was ready to set the whole thing on fire. Because this right now, this is like the ninth time tonight that I have attempted to start this episode. And this is actually probably the 29th time I've attempted to record episode 179. Because last Thursday I was here in the Garage of Solitude for a regularly scheduled recording so that I could have a show for you on Friday morning. And, uh, well... Uh, for some reason, I just got hit. I got deluged. I got avalanched by technical issues. StreamYard was not behaving very nicely towards me. And uh, I think I finally figured it out, though. This one seems to actually be off and running. Nothing is frozen. There's not a crazy lag. So I think I think I can actually give you a show this time. And it, it, I'm I'm excited to do it because last week was a big one. Last week there we got a big a news item that's going to open up the Superman on film update in just a moment. And we also heard from a certain major Hollywood name who took a certain harsh and sudden uh, stance against working for DC Studios last week in an in an, in an interesting tell all interview with the Hollywood Reporter. So uh, we have some interesting pressing topics to get to. And now that the show has been delayed long enough for me to find out how how Shazam 2 opened at the box office, that opens up another uh, line of inquiry, another topic for us to unpack here, because uh, it was not a very appealing opening weekend for David Sandberg's sequel there, Shazam Fury of the Gods. Well, we'll get into it. But uh, it didn't do so hot. All right. So that's going to be an extra added topic. But you know what? Since I've been keeping you waiting long enough, I'm going to be diving straight into business. But I do just want to let you know, too, that there will be two episodes this week. All right. So I've got this one coming for you now. And 180, episode 180, will be arriving at its regularly scheduled Friday interval now that I think I finally figured out what was causing up my issues with StreamYard. And besides, there's plenty to talk about. So I'm excited to give you two episodes this week. But you know what else I'm excited about? I'm excited to give you this week's Superman on film update for March the 21st, 2023. So since the last recording of the fanboy, uh, we got some major news on Superman Legacy. Now, while it has been long expected, long rumored, long whispered, long suggested, long hoped for, uh, James Gunn has now officially and finally revealed that he is going to be directing Superman Legacy. Yes, on his social media pages, he released statements. And what's interesting is, there's a difference between the Instagram post and the Twitter thread. So I'm going to read the Twitter thread that he released. Um, here we go. He says, yes, I'm directing Superman Legacy to be released on July 11th, 2025. My brother Matt said when he saw the release date, 
He started to cry. I asked him why. He said, dude, it's dad's birthday. I hadn't realized. I lost my dad almost three years ago. He was my best friend. He didn't understand me as a kid, but he supported my love of comics and my love of film, and I wouldn't be making this movie now without him. It has been a long road to this point. I was offered Superman years ago. I, I initially said no because I didn't have a way in that felt unique and fun and emotional that gave Superman the dignity he deserved. Then a bit less than a year ago, I saw a way in, in many ways centering around Superman's heritage, how both his aristocratic Kryptonian parents and his Kansas farmer parents inform who he is and the choices he makes. So I chose to finally take on writing the script, but I was hesitant to direct. Despite the constant pestering by Peter Safran and others to commit, sorry, Peter, just because I write something doesn't mean I feel it in my bones, visually and emotionally, enough to spend over two years directing it, especially not something of this magnitude. But the long and short of it is, I love this script, and I'm incredibly excited as we begin this journey. So, um, I mean, what a you know, it, it's a it's a very interesting statement by him, right? There's a lot of beautiful sort of emotional stuff that I'm going to talk, you know, get into in a sec. But there's also the bit there that's like he kind of had to point out that he was pestered and sort of forced in certain ways to take the job that he doesn't necessarily feel the desire to direct everything he writes, but it looks like he's come around and basically been convinced to do just that. Um, but yeah, in terms of the stuff that he says about, you know, his father and the fact that his father was his best friend and supported his love of comics and film, and he wouldn't be making it without him. I mean, that is a pretty interesting connection. The fact that July 11th is his father's uh, birthday and his father is so integral to who he is as a creative artist and how passionate he is about these characters and uh, the literary works that inspire them. So, you know, I mean, that in and of itself is very touching. And there was a story that was shared early on in this process about how he had trouble connecting with people, making friends as a kid. And he was going through kind of like dark, awkward times as a child until his father kind of like helped and enabled his love of comics and helped kind of like invest in that passion and in the, and in that love that he had for all that. And it helped turn him into who he is today, even though his father himself didn't necessarily get what was so cool and so special about these things. So he's once again, sort of referencing that. And it's a beautiful thing for me, especially because like, you know, my relationship with my father, you know, he's, he's one of my best friends too. And growing up, you know, if I didn't have my father in my corner helping me through some of the stuff that I've gone through over the years, I don't know where I'd be. I'd be lost without that cat. I would not be who I am today without my father. And hearing James kind of talk like that about his father and, and the connection to the Superman movie and, you know, and then listen, the thing that really gets me is what he how he refers to what a superman story needs when he says um you know i didn't have a way in that felt unique and fun and emotional that gave superman the dignity he deserved that right there got me as a superman fan going like yes 
Yes, dignity. Yes, treat them with respect and care. This is someone who's not looking to make a badass action movie with a flying demigod as it's at its center. This is someone who wants to tell a deeper, sort of more emotional story, but something that's befitting a character that is so beloved and so enduring through the ages, you know? So, uh, listen, it sounds like our boy Superman is in good hands, you know? And with him officially directing it, you know, th this puts an end to a lot of speculation. This puts an end to a lot of uh, just, you know, rumors and, and whispers and things going around. People wondering if it's going to happen. You know, it, it's official now. James Gunn, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, the Suicide Squad, Peacemaker and other non-comic book fare is now going to be helming a relaunch of superman that hopes to basically on its back usher in a whole new era for dc on film and really begin the biggest story ever told across multiple mediums this is extremely ambitious stuff but with him officially directing now you know his detractors are of course are very vocal online they they've come out of the woodworks just as they have from the outset just to kind of uh you know crap all over this and point out how you know what has this guy shown us to let us know that he's worthy of this job and that he can be trusted with all these characters and with all and, and with building this dc universe you know they're throwing out the last 10 years of dc eu continuity and giving him free reign to basically relaunch everything you know why are they doing this and why are some people seemingly so fine with it and now that he's directing superman the holy grail of all this you know there's people who are just wondering why is anybody on board with this and uh Look, for me, I'd like to tackle why I have faith in James Gunn, okay? Um, because first of all, he has experience in this realm. And when it comes to the world building, when it comes to taking the comic book mythology and building it out and adapting it for a modern audience and doing it in a way that lures people in, grows the audience and builds to some sort of larger climax down the line. Like these are all important things that James Gunn had a hand in helping Kevin Feige form there, especially as they were doing Infinity War and Endgame and all that stuff. James Gunn was a very big part of the creative aspect of the MCU going cosmic with Thor Ragnarok and all that kind of stuff. You know, James Gunn, he's got experience in this world, which is one of the main reasons that I, I, I have faith in him as the general architect of this. But also there's the fact that he comes from kind of like a geek first, a fan first, a comic book fanatic first mindset with all of these, where he really loves the lore. He loves exploring the quirky bits of canon. He loves looking at the larger mythology and how the small pieces come together to tell bigger parts. You know, I, I love that he's a, he, he approaches it as a film geek first. I don't want some random film executive who's had a good run producing certain kinds of movies suddenly in charge. No, I want somebody who's passionate about this stuff, running the creative end of things, you know? And then when it comes to why I have faith in him handling Superman, it's because when it comes to the Marvel cinematic universe, I always point out that there is a, a kind of lack of emotional depth with a lot of their stuff. 
And when I look at the, you know, 26, 27, 28 some odd movies that have come out from Marvel Studios, there's very few that I can honestly say put a lump in my throat that got genuine emotion that made me spring forward in my seat at the movie theater with goosebumps on my arms, feeling all kinds of things. You know, the, the Marvel movies very rarely get me into that place where I feel so fully immersed in the emotions and the psychology of the story that I'm just kind of lost in that dream state that every filmmaker would love their audience to be in. You know, Marvel rarely brings me to those heights. But I will say that within James Gunn's couple of Guardians movies, I've come the, you know, I have felt things. I have seen a genuine emotional chord of these stories that comes through that makes them feel less like some kind of a product on an assembly line building for the next crossover movie, the next big Avengers event film, and more like, an actual story with interesting characters and relationships that evolve and grow over time and all these disparate dynamics coming together to form a team. You know, there, there, there's all these interesting themes with guardians of the galaxy having to do with your chosen family, how like, yes, you have your nuclear family, but there might be some uh, baggage there or there might be mysteries there. And as we go through life, we're going to want to find our chosen brothers, our chosen sisters, our chosen family, because sometimes our actual blood family, you know, they're either not around for us or they're not really what we need. They're not good for us, you know? So there's like interesting themes in there about family and coming together and, and, um, all I know is through those first two, for, through volumes one and two, I have felt things. And I've seen things in his storyline that are beautiful and graceful and emotional in nature. And almost operatic at times with some of just the more loving moments. And, and how really what's at the core of all of that is the connection these characters have to each other. And how they'll fight for each other till the end. You know, the beautiful we are Groot moment. The moment there where Groot, you know, sacrifices his life for his family, but doesn't even seem to mind it because he loves them. And this is a sacrifice he's more than happy to make. You know, there, there's so many, there's lots of touching little moments there over those first two movies that show me that this is someone who knows actually how to tell an emotional story and not just get lost in the spectacle and lost in the CGI and lost in the cool visuals, but who actually remembers that the story and the characters are the most important thing here. They are the true special effect. You could film all kinds of things in front of green screens and add all kinds of things, but the real special effect is the way these characters interact and the way the story makes you feel and the way things unfold and how it brings you along every step of the way as a, as a viewer, as a, as an audience member, it takes you on that journey. And I think guns, uh, prioritizing of characters and story shows me that this is someone I would love to see handle a Superman story. Now, the tricky part is, of course, you know, the emotions that he's able to wring out of stuff, even in, you know, even in something like Peacemaker, right? That's another one. You know, ever since he's come to DC also, I should touch on that. I loved the Suicide Squad, and I don't see that as like the same kind of movie as Guardians. The Suicide Squad had its own unique themes and its own unique dynamics, and it had its own kind of interesting energy that was very separate of Guardians of the Galaxy. 
you know, but with Peacemaker, you know, I found myself like I was sobbing during a scene between Peacemaker and Eagly towards the end of that first season, the season, the, the, the scene where they're like alone in that room and Eagly like hugs him and he's crying and it's super emotional. I'm crying on the couch, feeling all of these things. And I'm like, how did James Gunn make me feel all of this with this ridiculous guy and his stupid helmet and his pet Eagle, you know, like he has a way of like, ringing emotion and 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 having things that can kind of creep up on you at unexpected times and in unexpected places while in general telling a story that's kind of you know weird and subversive and quirky and using you know offbeat characters he finds a way to all of a sudden hit you in the feels but with superman you got to play it a little more straight than that it can't feel almost like an oddball comedy with the occasional heartstring pull. You know what I mean? With Superman, you got to kind of play it straight. He's going to have to like play it with dignity and nobility. And yeah, of course, have some humor in there. But the emotional moments, the, the emotional core, the heart of the movie is going to have to be pretty evident. And it's going to be it's going to have to be played pretty earnestly in order to connect with audiences the way I think a modern Superman classic should. And that's something that he hasn't shown us yet, that he could do something that is just from start to finish. Here's a two hour earnest tale. You know, here's something just an honest to goodness story that isn't also, you know, isn't trying to wow you with different things on all these different levels. You know, Superman has to just be able to play it straight. And, uh, you know, he hasn't done that yet, per se, but I think he's got it in him. And I think as long as he's willing to do that, as long as he's not going to try to turn Superman into some quirky, dark comedy, um, which I don't think he's going to do. You know, I have this hunch that he's going to go very comic book accurate with all of these characters, not just Superman. You know, I think the designs, the depictions, all of these characters we're going to see as DC Studios launches in a couple of years, you know, as the DCU as we know it begins in the next few years, I feel it's going to have a very like ripped from the pages. Like it just jumped right out of a comic book where whether you're reading it in a book or watching it at the movies or seeing it on TV, you're going to see that same character in all the mediums. They're going to feel tonally the same. You know what I mean? And, and, and visually the same. So when it comes to Superman, you know, I don't think he's going to try to reinvent it and give us some unique James Gunnian take on Superman. No, he's going to give us like a classic Superman story told to a modern audience through his unique you know, lens. But I don't think he's going to try to play it for laughs. And I don't think it's going to be nearly as sort of like subversive and quirky and off the beaten path as some of his other stuff has been. And honestly, that might be some of his trepidation. It's interesting that in his statement, he mentions kind of being hesitant about taking the job. Because that's something I've talked about here on this show, that I've had friends at Warner Brothers who've who've spoken to that, that, that they've heard that Gunn has had some hesitance about taking this project and that he kind of feels more inclined to take something like the authority that is more in his wheelhouse, you know? So that tells me even he knows that this is going to be unique for him. This is going to be a different thing for him. And 
you know, maybe there's a reason why he was legitimately avoiding the director's chair for this. So let's also hope that let's hope that like, he's able to figure it out that like, if, if this really is something that maybe was not the right assignment for him, you know, I hope we don't live to regret that he was convinced to do it. You know, that's the only thing that has me a little bit worried because even in that statement, you know, he brings up that he doesn't always feel that need and that pull to direct what he writes. He brings that up, but he doesn't exactly make it right on the other end. He doesn't go. And with this script, it's just so clear. I feel it so much. I, I need to do this. Or I, I hit a turning point while writing it. When I wrote the final scene last week, I knew, okay, this is a story that I have to tell. He didn't really say that. He just brought up that, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't always feel the need to direct these things, but basically everyone else wants me to, and I love the script. So I'm going to have fun making it, but it doesn't, you know, it sounds like he's even he himself has a little bit of trepidation. So in terms of like me having faith in James Gunn, uh, I hope James Gunn has faith in James Gunn, you know, and if I, I hope as, as he's um, in pre-production and, and getting things together, like if he really feels I am a bad fit for this. I am not the man for this job. I hope that maybe he, as the co-head of DC Studios, would hit pause and go, you know what? We're going to find a different director because Superman deserves someone who feels like this is my zone. I can crush this, you know? But, um, but yeah, I've got faith. He's made me feel things. I know he's got the goods with it when it comes to telling a story too. That and I love this. I love when a story is what is about one thing on the surface. But for those of us who like to dig deeper, read between the lines, what is the subtext of the scene? What is this all a metaphor for? Like for the people like me who like to break down the themes and understand the characters' motivations and their arcs and and understand the psychology and, and even maybe see how like, yes, this is a larger than life crazy story with flying creatures and lasers and this and that, but it actually is a metaphor for America today. You know, like in other words, like I love when I'm able to like connect and see like, oh, you know what? There, the, there is some meat on the bone here. This isn't just, you know, a, an empty bubblegum blockbuster. And James Gunn has been very adept at that. Sometimes when I'm looking at a lot of MCU movies and MCU TV shows, I'm like, there's not a lot of subtext here. This is about exactly what they're showing us it's about. And it's kind of simplistic and I kind of don't care, you know, but with James Gunn stuff, especially with some of this, you know, with Peacemaker, which is the most recent thing he's done, which shows, you know, as you, as you go through a life as a writer and director, you're maturing constantly and you're honing your craft. And in theory, you're getting better. Right. And to me, Peacemaker, his latest thing is the best thing I've seen him do. So I'm kind of ready to watch him peak with Superman legacy. You know, he seems to be on a steady path where, you know, he's, he's, he's finding himself even more. So now he's becoming even more self-assured, even more in control of his uh, facilities, of his faculties, you know, and even the trailer for guardians of the galaxy volume three, 
looks like he's going to be delivering a Marvel movie that has emotional stakes and drama. And, you know, there's going to be some heft and gravitas to that. This doesn't look like it's going to be your usual light, bouncy, fluffy movie, you know? So it looks like he's he's been saving the best for last with his Guardians trilogy. And it looks like, you know, emotionally speaking, the shit's about to hit the fan for that crew. So I'm excited to see how he does with that also, you know? Um, but yeah, so I, in Gun, I believe... But uh, there's somebody who seems to have lost all kinds of faith in James Gunn, and that is none other than Ben Affleck. Because, uh, well, you know what? It, rather than referencing that a few months ago Gunn said some things about Affleck, I'm going to read you the quotes. I'm going to remind you of these two quotes that I've brought up here in previous episodes so that I could we could juxtapose it to what Ben Affleck said himself last week in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter. So first of all, when it comes to the uh, architecture team uh, for the DCU, J uh, James Gunn had said back on January the 31st, we're working with Ben Affleck, who really wants to be, has been a part of our architecture team, trying to bring things together. And he really wants to direct one of our projects. And we're excited for him doing that. Okay. Remember that one? Remember? And that one kind of blew my mind because I'm like, wait a minute. So he he's not just like a director. He's not someone who they're thinking of like, okay, we'll, we'll get a script into shape, into the kind of shape that we like. And then we'll hire Ben Affleck to be the man who brings it to life. No, no, no. This idea that he's actually part of the architecture team. Remember, we've heard, you know, we, we've heard reported, we've heard some of the names. There's like a writer's room. There's a, you know, we got Drew Goddard in there. We got Christina Hodson. We have, you know, he's got like a creative brain trust of people who are helping him map out chapters one and two. So this idea that Affleck might have been part of that team rocked my world. It blew my mind. I'm like, really? Ben Affleck? The guy who has wanted nothing to do with DC or Batman since early 2017, and yes, has been convinced to come back and had a pleasurable time on both Zack Snyder's Justice League and The Flash. But really, you know, th these were like, you know, a glorified curtain call, a glorified goodbye are what Zack Snyder's Justice League and The Flash were for Ben Affleck's Batman. But this guy who by all accounts has been just out of it, wants nothing to do with it, who even a few months before these announcements were made, went public saying he is not working on any major franchises or IPs anymore, that he really just wants to do smaller independent films. He's founded a new studio with his partner, Matt Damon, and they're trying to develop, you know, interesting, cool, new original stories he's not looking to try to tell these big tentpole blockbuster stories anymore he's over that he's tired of all of that so to hear from gun's mouth that affleck was on the architecture team and that he really wants to direct one of their movies you know that had me like are you serious they must have like really blown him away with what they're doing creatively 
they must have blown him away with their plans for how they're going to be running DC Studios if he's willing to dip his toe back into those waters again and open himself up to the, all of that scrutiny again, you know? And then there was another quote, you know, Saffron, because, yeah, he was asked about is, uh, you know, has there been a specific project? You know, are they going to get him to do the brave and the bold since he's a former Batman actor? And Saffron said, no, no, no. We're just talking to Ben in general about stuff. And Gunn added, yeah, we and Ben have not decided together exactly. We're talking about two different projects right now. So once again, this is not Gunn loosely stating a desire to work with Ben Affleck. This is Gunn saying on the record to journalists that he's been communicating with Affleck, that Affleck is part of the architecture team, has been a part of it, is really eager to direct, and that they're just trying to figure out between one of two projects. You got that? That's important to keep in mind when I read to you this quote from Ben Affleck that came out last week. Okay. Think about all that. Think about the architecture team. Think about we're, we're talking about one or two different projects. Think about that. And now think about what he told the Hollywood reporter. Uh, he was asked if DC came to you now and said, do you want to direct something? Ben Affleck answered, I would not direct something for the James Gunn DC. Absolutely not. I have nothing against James Gunn. Nice guy. Sure, he's going to do a great job. I just wouldn't want to go in and direct in the way they're doing that. I'm not interested in that. Woo! Okay. Uh, does that sound like somebody who has been a part of the architecture team and is like eager to direct one of these movies? Or does this sound like someone who's kind of like almost like you know, pissed at them? Like, you know, like there's something so like emphatic and curt and sharp about his answer that it, it sounds like somebody who's just like completely put off by the idea. And it does, it's, it, 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 it raises a lot of questions and theories have been floating around about how Gunn could have said what he said in late January and how Affleck could be saying what he's saying now in mid March. And what could this mean? So right now I'm going to talk to you guys a little bit about some of the theories because yes, it does seem like Ben Affleck has uh, sort of ditched the DCU, so to speak, depending on if you believe James Gunn's comments. And uh, let, let's kind of just sort through some of the things I've been seeing people say. And I'm going to share some of the things I've been hearing and some of the things I'm just thinking about all this. So when it comes to Affleck ditching the DCU, when it comes to James Gunn acting like he was absolutely part of the initial, you know, architecture team and looking to find a project. And now Affleck emphatically saying, absolutely not. Well, theory one is that James Gunn lied. James Gunn, you know, was just, he made it up. 
He's not, you know, he, he never really had a serious commitment from Ben Affleck. And he was just saying that so that DCEU fans would give the DCU a shot because the DCEU fans love Batfleck. They love them some, some, some Ben Affleck stuff. So, Hey, listen, if he's directing one of these new DC movies, it's a, it's a nice little peace offering. So maybe James Gunn just made that up to try to string along the DCEU fans. All right. So that's one theory that he lied. Then there's theory too that, you know, it's not that he lied, but it was all public relations. He never really meant the offers to Affleck and others that really, you know, because we know that he's he's talked to everyone from the former DCEU about continuing on in some different fashion. Right. He says he offered Cavill a new role and we don't know how that went. We know he offered Jason Momoa a new role and Jason took him up on that. So with Ben Affleck, you know, he probably offered him a directing job, but just for the optics of it. You know what I mean? He, he, he was just, it, it was just a PR ploy to try to, you know, make nice with him. Hey, listen, I'm, I, I'm rebooting the thing that you've been a part of, but Hey, you know, if you want to direct, you know, I'll throw you a bone basically, you know? So theory two is that he was really, he was just being nice just doing the PR lip service for all of us, but not really seriously considering Ben Affleck to do something. Then there's theory three that Ben Affleck hates James Gunn and he loves Zack Snyder and he hates the DCU reboot. And he wants to help Zack Snyder sell the Snyder verse to Netflix and continue on there. You know, there's things like that, that I've seen things of that regard, that that's why he's turned his back on James Gunn because of his faith in Snyder and his desire for the Snyder verse to continue on in some way and yada, yada, yada. And then there's my theory, which is that Affleck was in until he wasn't in. You know, I don't think there's any reality. I don't think there's any earth in our multiverse here where James Gunn just abjectly made this up. I don't think James Gunn just lied and told all of these major trade reporters and told all the fans around the world something that just he made up one morning. Okay. He absolutely had conversations with Ben Affleck and Ben Affleck absolutely voiced some kind of interest in being involved and maybe even offered up just pointers like, okay, you're taking this job. And, you know, I've been at DC for the last few years and I know how they've been running things. And, you know, I've always felt that if it was approached like X, Y, or Z, it could be a success, you know, and maybe they kicked around ideas and they spoke as directors and producers, and they had some big picture discussions for how to get this right. Right. I feel like maybe they probably had those conversations, but I feel like as Ben Affleck saw more and more where Gunn was trending with this stuff, though, with the fact that we are dealing with basically a writer's room. We are dealing with a producer who's going to have a large hand in casting everybody's characters. James Gunn's already gone on the record as saying that he's going, you know, he said we are going to be casting hundreds of roles over the next few years, you know. As Affleck heard more and more about how interconnected this is all going to be, how important the synergy is going to be to interlock all these stories, I get the sense that he got kind of cold feet 
and said, you know what, maybe this isn't for me again. You know, once again, this looks like we're getting into something where there's going to be uh, a boss for each director to answer to, and that boss could come in and change your movie outright. So maybe I don't want to work under that level of scrutiny again. I want to just go and do what I said I was going to do, which was avoid major franchises, avoid major IPs and just make smaller movies. Maybe that's my better play. And he just kind of divorced himself of the situation. Okay. They, my, my honest theory is that it's something like that. Okay. I, I don't think there's any chance Gunn just made it up. I think Affleck, those conversations must have happened. They must have kicked around some ideas. Affleck might have even mentioned that, you know, he he's thought of a good way to approach Superman, that he realized that there's a great way to tell a Superman story. And James Gunn saw that and was all right, you know, and took notes and, you know, whatever. I just, I could see them having some very interesting conversations, but I could also see Affleck seeing the enormity of this story and the fact that we're looking at, you know, at least 22 projects for chapter one and God knows how many for chapter two. And if you're directing one of these, you are kind of beholden to what the other directors are doing. We, this is going to be a team sort of element here. This is going to be a team sport, what they're doing at DC Studios with the DCU. This is not going to be a filmmaker driven. All right, you take your character and go make your movie however you see fit. And you take this team and you go make your movies how you see fit. And then we're all going to figure out, you know, it's not going to be like that. So I feel like Affleck probably, uh, as he started getting a stronger sense for the lay of the land, he decided, you know what? I don't want to be part of that big machine again. All right. So thanks. But no thanks. Okay. And um, see, there is perhaps a fifth option where things are a little more nefarious. And I tend to try not to think that way. I tend to try to see the best in everybody and try to, you know, find that silver lining. And oh, there's no way anyone could just be that evil or be that manipulative you know oh, life isn't a tv show life isn't a movie i try to see the best in people whether it's in real life in my actual personal life or in these situations i follow online these news stories about these projects i care about so much i always try to convince myself that everyone has sincere intentions and is trying to be a kind good person to those around them i really i always try to think that but there is an interesting sort of nefarious angle here, if you want to look at it this way. Another possible explanation for what's gone on here, because I do detect some anger from Affleck. I don't know why. It's just words. It's just text. But the words are so emphatic, so strong. And what's interesting, too, is there's no follow-up question. Because I'm going to get into some other quotes in that interview in a few minutes now. But the questions that preceded this one, they all got follow-up questions. Because he, he went into this whole thing kind of rehashing his experience making Justice League and, and, and Batman versus Superman and, and Zack Snyder's Justice League and how that was received. You know, he kind of does a bit of like a post-mortem on what it was like to do all of that. 
And as he's talking through it, the reporter is chiming in with follow-up questions and going, oh, yeah, and that couldn't have been good, and oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was like a conversation. The, the reporter wanted to get more out of Affleck on this subject. But this question about directing for the current DC and working with James Gunn, there's zero follow-up. It just goes abruptly into a, a completely different subject. It's very, it, it's weird to me because like if I'm a reporter and I want the dirt and I'm trying to get to the heart of the story, you know, there's no way this reporter doesn't know, by the way, that James Gunn's been going around saying Ben Affleck is, is in the mix here. You know, you don't work for the Hollywood reporter and not have known that Ben Affleck's name has been getting bandied about. So as soon as Gunn said what he said, there would be a natural like, really, because he, you know, he, he said that you were interested. Is that not true? You know, there would be some, especially with the, the last bit of that, when he says, I just wouldn't want to go in and direct in the way they're doing that. Like, there's no way a reporter goes, OK, I'm just going to let that go. You know, we want to know what that means. They're doing what? What do you mean in the way they're doing that? Like there's there's no way that there wasn't a follow up question. And the fact that it doesn't show up in print means to me that the reporter likely asked a follow up question and Affleck more or less said, I don't want to go any further into that. I really let, let's just move on from that subject, please. You know, it sounds like somebody who's like, he could say more, but he doesn't want more of his thoughts on this to get out there. You know what I mean? That's how it reads to me. If you go back and read the interview, you'll see like there's a whole section there for like a page and a half, two pages. He's talking about DC and it's a nice back and forth conversation. And the second James Gunn comes up, it just, bam, jumps into a completely different subject afterward about budgets on movies, you know? so. um so, yes, the nefarious option that I've been kind of, you know, dancing around here. And, you know, it's something that a friend of mine at the studio has floated around. But again, this is, you know, this is hearsay. This is speculating. You know, no, none of us are in Ben Affleck's head. None of us are in James Gunn's head. None of us knows exactly what was said or what wasn't said. But there are people there on the Warner lot talking there are whispers kind of floating around and one of the whispers is that Affleck is pretty pissed because apparently he was interested in doing possibly Superman legacy and he feels possibly like James Gunn was throwing his name around, including at behind-the-scenes meetings to people like David Zaslav and other people who have a vested interest in how DC Studios goes and how Superman Legacy goes. You know, he's been mentioning Affleck, but every step of the way, when he would, the studio is just like, yeah, but we want you. And coming back with a higher offer but we'll pay you, you know, let, let, just throw just fake numbers. I like imagine the first time around they're like, listen, we want to pay you $5 million to direct Superman legacy on top of whatever your salary is for DC studios. And he's like, no, no, no. I really, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm the man for the job, but I might be able to get Ben Affleck who seems to have a great way to do it. And then they come back and go, yeah, but okay. What if we gave you 10 million? 
And he's like, no, no, no. But listen, Ben Affleck, though, you know, this is a big opportunity. He's an Academy Award winning director. And then they go, all right, fine, James, 15 million. Will you do it for 15 million? And Gunn is like, listen, I'd really rather do the authority. I'd rather do something that's more in my wheelhouse. And I've written this good script. I'm almost done with it. I really think Affleck could do something special with it. And then they finally threw a number at him that he just couldn't say no to. And he's like, what? You're going to give me $20 million? I'm, by the way, I'm making these numbers up, by the way. I'm not, these are just, you know, this is just, you know, imaginary math. Okay. But for the, for some of the whispers I've heard though, there's a sense that Affleck thinks his name was just used as a bargaining chip that he thought he was having good faith conversations about possibly directing a Superman movie. And as it turned out, it was just James Gunn using his name to get a big pay raise. And that's why that interview came out. Interestingly enough, one day after James Gunn revealed he's going to do Superman legacy. It's interesting that like Gunn makes that announcement and the very next day Affleck, like a scorned lover is making it very clear. Yeah. I don't want to work for that guy anyway. I don't, you know, I'm done with all that. I'm not involved, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it almost seems like there is an element of spite there over the Superman directing job. Again, it's just a theory. And again, it, 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 it's all about how you look at it. If you're in Affleck's camp, you can choose to look at it like Gunn was just using your name for leverage. And he knew he was going to direct it all along, but he kept mentioning Affleck so he could get the sickest payday possible. Or you could look at it from the gun camp where maybe he really has trepidation about doing this project. And he really would have loved to just hand the script off to another extremely capable director who's passionate about this stuff so that he could go do his authority type stuff. You know what I mean? Maybe Gunn legitimately, when every time he would mention Affleck, he legitimately wanted them to take him up on that so he could focus on other stuff. Until finally, they again, they threw a number at him. They made an offer. They made it clear that they're not going to accept a substitute. They want you to be the guy. So, James, it's time to put on your big boy pants and be the guy. You know? So... That is just another sort of way to read the tea leaves here. And there are definitely people who work at Warner Brothers who are talking along these lines. And there's even a belief that they're trying to schedule. I mean, listen, now this episode has been delayed. So maybe by now they've already done it. But there's even talk that after that interview came out in, on Thursday last week, that DC and Warner Brothers started started kind of like scrambling to schedule a meeting with Affleck to try to mend fences because they could tell that he's annoyed about how this all went. And, you know, maybe that's happened by now. Maybe they've had the talk. Maybe they've buried the hatchet. I don't think that means Affleck is going to suddenly do an about face and direct the DC movie now. But I think it speaks to the fact that there's a sentiment at the, you know, on the Warner brothers lot that 
maybe they dropped the ball with Affleck and it's really, it's not a good look to have him telling the Hollywood reporter, he would absolutely not work with DC studios with the way they are doing things. You know, it's kind of throwing like, you know, indirect, but passive aggressive dirt on this whole enterprise before this whole enterprise has even really gotten off the ground. You know, this James Gunn thing is potentially, I mean, this Ben Affleck thing is potentially James Gunn's first big blunder as the co-head of DC Studios. You know, this is just the optics of this are not phenomenal. Again, it'd be one thing if it was just like a random tweet. Because remember, there was one that was just like that. There was a tweet in like early January, I think, where someone had asked about, or maybe you know, I think it was in late December, shortly after he announced Superman Legacy and announced that Henry Cavill would not be returning. Someone had asked about Ben Affleck and he had tweeted something about, you know, we're, we're talking to Ben about directing one of the movies. Um, it's one thing if it was just a one-off to a, a tweet to a fan. And, you know, we, you can't very well hold someone accountable for just a social media interaction, you know. But the fact that he went on the record with trade reporters in published interviews that he knew were going to get a ton of coverage. he you know, the, There's no way that he did that and he was just making it up, okay. And there's no way that this doesn't look really bad to suddenly have Affleck going, absolutely not. I wouldn't do it, you know? So there's definitely some, like, they're doing a little damage control over there, I would have to say. And there you go. Those are the different theories and rumors. There's an interesting relationship to the fact that, once again, Gunn announces he's directing Superman and we get this report from Affleck. And mind you, the I'm not implying that the interview happened like that morning. You know, the, these things take some time to happen. It might have that he might have made that decision weeks ago. But it looks like somewhere between January 31st and March 16th, Ben Affleck had his big about face something happened in his dealings with dc studios that made him go you know what screw this i'm gonna stick i'm gonna go back to my earlier stance no more of this franchise crap for me i don't want to work i don't want to make movies by committee i don't want to be part of some creative team i want to be able to make just a good movie and that and that's the only thing that matters you know but uh, and listen if it's true that he feels used if it's true that he feels like dc studios is already off to a not great start with their transparency and their conversations if he really thinks james gunn just use his name as a bargaining chip uh i hope they had that meeting you know i hope they bury whatever hatchet because i would like to think that that's not the kind of person james gunn is i don't know the guy personally but i would like to believe i would like to think that he wouldn't just do that that he wouldn't manipulate the situation just to get himself a nice cushy raise you know um i really do and i almost think that that's one of the reasons he mentioned the hesitancy in his statement almost as like a thing to affleck yeah or anyone else he was discussing possibly directing the movie you know he's like I really was on the fence about this. 
You know, he really wants to make sure people know that like he, he, this was not a sure thing. This was not something he was intending from the outset. This isn't news he's been holding on to since mid-December. This is something that he really had to give thought to and really come around to the idea of, you know? So I hope they mend fences. I hope there's no bad blood, you know, and, and, and especially because, Affleck really has been through the ringer with all this stuff. He's not somebody who ever really needed this stuff to begin with. You know, I was saying back in 2014 or 2013, whenever it was that he was cast, I think it was like summer of 2013 or fall of 2013 is when Affleck was announced as the new Batman. And I remember thinking he doesn't need this. You know, he's just masterminded one of the best Hollywood comebacks of the modern era. Here's a guy whose career went down in flames with Geely and Jersey Girl and a string of mediocre movies. And, you know, he was always compared negatively to Matt Damon, who always seemed to have a much better eye for choosing movies that were more artistically fulfilling and that didn't like sacrifice him as an actor for some, you know, paycheck, basically. And he, you know, through million dollar, no, not million dollar baby, through that gone baby gone and Argo and the town and all that stuff, you know, Affleck had masterminded this wonderful comeback. And now he's going to run around in a rubber suit dressed like Batman. Like it never made sense to me, not you know, 10 years ago when they announced it. And even now, it never made sense to me that he would come back and get involved in this world again. But you know what? It, with some of the stuff he said in the, uh, in the THR interview, you know, it's not necessarily insane that he would be burnt out and want nothing to do with any of this stuff again. It's not necessarily insane. He doesn't want to be a part of a big machine where there's all kinds of people whose opinions could override the director. Uh, because in that interview, you know, th there were several comments made about Justice League and his experience on that. So we're going to I'm going to read some of the quotes from that and we're going to have a little bit of analysis on what Affleck had to say here. Um, talking about the Justice League experience, the fact that those stories became somewhat repetitive to me and less interesting. Yeah, I did finally figure out how to play that character, Batman, and I nailed it in the flash. For the first five minutes, for the five minutes I'm there, it's really great. A lot of it's just tone. You've got to figure out what's your version of the person. Who is the guy that fits what you can do? I tried to fit myself into a Batman. And by the way, I like a lot of the stuff we did, especially the first one, Batman versus Superman. So that's interesting right there, too. That idea of, you know, he found it sounds like initially he was trying to fit into Batman. He was trying to be Batman rather than trying to portray his version. Who would Batman be through me? You know, who is the Batman that I play? Who's the, 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 the tone and the guy that I could bring to life as opposed to trying to fit some ideal of what I think Batman is. And um, it sounds like, you know, he kind of, he finally found that interesting balance by the time he got to the flash. But 
it's interesting. You know, I've always said, by the way, as we get into these next few quotes, you know, I've always said that Affleck was a big, true believer in BVS and in Zack Snyder's Justice League and in the films that Zack Snyder had pitched to him that made him initially sign on to do this. I've always said that of all the Justice Leaguers, he's the one who was most personally affected, pissed off, hurt, disenchanted, and frustrated by what the studio did to those movies. He was the one who was most. Then after him, you know, you had Jason Momoa, Gal Gadot, Ray Fisher, Ezra Miller, who none of them were thrilled about what was going on, but they were willing to be team players and do what they got to do. And Ray Fisher, we know that got a little hairy there towards the end. But, you know, those four were kind of willing to play ball. And then there was Henry Cavill, who was totally fine with the course correct the course correction and was all all too happy to push towards the justice league and the reinvention of superman so that he could just come back from the dead and tell some joyful happy good superman stories after justice league 2017 I've always kind of brought that up as the dynamic there that um, the two extremes where you had Affleck who was miserable, miserable about what was going on. And on the other extreme, you had Cavill who's like, this is great. This might actually give me a good run as Superman because people were mixed on man of steel. People more or less hated the theatrical cut of Batman versus Superman. So whatever we can do to like, reinvigorate and and relaunch superman in a way that moves us away from that depiction i am all for it so as we get into these next few quotes just keep in mind that this is confirming how harsh this all was on ben affleck how hard it was for him to see the original vision and what it got turned into and what that process was like so he says um you know he's asked what went wrong there what went wrong with Justice League? Because he had just finished saying that he loved uh, Batman versus Superman. But the interviewer goes, but not Justice League. What went wrong there? And Ben Affleck says, Justice League. You could teach a seminar on all the reasons why this is how not to do it. Ranging from production to bad decisions to horrible personal tragedy and just ending with the most monstrous taste in my mouth the genius and the silver lining is that Zack snyder eventually went to at&t and was like look i can get you four hours of content and it's principle principally just all the slow motion that he shot in black and white and one day of shooting with me and him he was like do you want to come shoot in my backyard i was like i think they're union zach i think we have to make a deal but I went and did it, and now Zack Snyder's Justice League is my highest-rated movie on IMDb. That's an interesting thing for him to mention, too. You know, he, he cares about his IMDb ratings. You know, with actors, you never know how connected they are. Do they really care about the reviews? Do they go online and see what people are saying about them? And here you have Affleck referring to his IMDb ratings. You know, it's kind of funny to see these... Uh, these titans of industry, uh, they really do care about uh, what is said about them out there and what the consensus is on their work. Continuing, 
Uh, he was, and, and you notice the interviewer keeps following up. They, after everything he says, there's another line or question. The interviewer in this case goes, isn't that because Zack Snyder's fans are so intense online? This is him talking about the IMDb thing. He's basically, you know, accusing the, the trolls of coming along and kind of rigging the IMDb rating. And uh, Affleck says, say what you want. It is my highest rated career movie. I've never had one that went from nadir to pinnacle. Retroactively, it's a hit. All of a sudden, you know, I was getting congratulated for the bomb I'm in, but I was going to direct a Batman. And Justice League made me go, I'm out. I never want to do any of this again. I'm not suited. That was the worst experience I've ever seen in a business which is full of some shitty experiences. It broke my heart. There was an idea of someone, Joss Whedon, coming in like, I'll rescue you and we'll do 60 days of shooting and I'll write a whole thing around what you have. I've got the secret. And it wasn't the secret. That was hard. And I started to drink too much. I was back at the hotel in London. It was either that or jump out the window. And I just thought, this isn't the life I wanted. This isn't the life I want. My kids aren't here. I'm miserable. You want to go to work and find something interesting to hang on to. Rather than just wearing a rubber suit, and most of it, you're just standing against the computer screen going, if this nuclear waste gets loose, we'll... That's fine. I don't condescend to that or put it down, but I got to a point where I found it creatively not satisfying. Also, just you're sweaty and exhausted, and I thought, I don't want to participate in this in any way, and I don't want to squander any more of my life, of which I have a limited amount. So, wow. Um you know, it's interesting, too, because I'm not sure he's ever gone quite on the record saying all of that. You know, I, I know I've been saying it since 2017. I remember having uh, Kelvin Chavez, uh, you know, the, the founder and editor in chief of Latino Review. He came on one of the early fanboy podcasts and we were talking about we heard Ben was in a bad way. You know, I launched this show on February 14th, 2017. So this is right amidst all the craziness okay this is shortly after justice league has screened and supposedly the 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 rough cut the assembly cut led the studio to be like yikes we need to fix this movie okay and i remember kelvin and i talking about the fact that ben wasn't doing so hot at the time that the fact that justice league was being overhauled basically on the fly and all this stuff that was going on and they weren't delaying it that all and the fact that justice league and his time on that basically monopolized his time so much that it killed his passion project live by night which ended up you know having a terrible run at theaters and and he didn't get to make that movie quite the way he wanted so i remember kelvin and i talking quite a bit about the personal hit this was all taking on affleck and to have him now confirming this is like you know it's it's sobering to hear 
And it's, you know, while I, I, I listen, I believe that I wouldn't have shared it with you if I didn't think it was true, but you know, to hear it now in black and white and to hear that, you know, it, it, it's either drinking too much or jumping out a window. I mean, I know he's using colorful language, but it sounds like he practically wanted to kill himself over how things were going and how dark, you know, he doesn't mention that at that time too, he was going through a divorce. You know, these were dark days. And that's why, too, I was writing stories in January and February for Latino Review about how do not be surprised if Ben Affleck bails on Batman and bails on DC, because all I keep hearing is that he's effing miserable. You know, I was writing all kinds of stories about that and getting all kinds of blowback about it. And to now hear him say from, you know, from the horse's mouth, just how dark and twisted a time in his life that all was. Um, you know, it's, it's, I'm not happy to hear it. I, I, you know, it's, you never wish that on anybody, but when you hear all that, doesn't it kind of make it quite crystal clear why he would be very hesitant to reenter that kind of a world again? You know, so this thing with DC studios, like it was only going to work if James Gunn was going to grant him some level of autonomy and let him make, you know, some bold, strong, creative choices on his own and like leave him alone to make the movie. You know, this was never going to work with Gunn and Saffron looking over Affleck's shoulder while he makes a DC movie. You know, I don't think that that arrangement was ever going to interest him you know so i don't know what they told him early on that made him think maybe this will work but clearly the more he learned the more he realized now this is a potential for more of the same and i need to get the hell out of there you know um and i don't know you listen it's not great for me to hear that you know because i was excited you know even though to me it was completely perplexing this idea that Affleck would come back, you know, I was excited because between Affleck, the rumors of James Mangold, you know, like it seemed like, wow, he's going for some serious directors. James Gunn is trying to get actual filmmakers here and you don't get filmmakers, auteurs, visionaries. You don't get those people if you're going to micromanage them. You know, you're, you don't get, you don't land those kind of storytellers if you're like, yeah, but I'm just, so you know, anything you do, I'm going to have the, I reserve the right to be like, that needs to be changed or fixed, you know? So to me, I was talking about it on this show several episodes ago too, about like, it's going to be fascinating to see what kind of a balance DC studios is able to find between something that's filmmaker friendly, like Warner brothers used to be traditionally and something that's more like the, the TV production model. That is the Marvel cinematic universe where the person who's really in charge is not the director, but rather the mega producer who's overseeing everything, which is just how a TV show operates where you have the showrunner, and the showrunner may hire 12 directors to do 12 episodes of the series but each of those directors knows that they they're just there to tell their small part of the story and get us from A to B to C to D to E but at the end of the day the showrunner is the one who's really in charge so i've been saying is dc studios going to be the showrunner model the marvel studios model 
the TV model that I always refer to? Or is it going to be something that allows a little more creative liberty, more filmmaker driven, more, hey, I hired you, I trust you, here's the script, go make the best movie you can make, and I'll see you in the editing bay at the end. You know, so if Affleck's departure implies that it's probably closer to Marvel than it is a filmmaker driven studio type of situation, you know? Um, which again, I'm fine with, I'm fine with, but it's going to be interesting to see what kind of directors he does get to play ball. Cause mind you, the James Mangold thing has yet to be confirmed. You know, that's still just kind of a rumor. He posted an image of swamp thing. James Mangold did. And James Gunn like liked that tweet. So naturally the, the, the assumption, the implication here is that it's more or less a done deal and they're just waiting on when to announce it. But Mangold could fly the coop too, you know? It's yeah, So we got to see how this goes. We have to see how DC Studios is able to present these projects and this franchise in general to its upcoming slate of directors that it's trying to hire in such a way that makes them feel like, okay, I could put my stamp on these characters, but still have it fit into the grander narrative. You know, so that's going to be something that's going to be very interesting to see unfold in the in, in the years that kind of lie ahead. But at least for now, for Affleck's sensibilities, he's it looks like there's just there, there's too much of a team mindset for now. You know, that that's what I'm getting when he says in the way that they are going to do that. It tells me that he doesn't want to do it in a way that there's a bunch of people involved. He wants to be the boss on his movie you know so uh, and who could blame him who could blame him you know he saw what they did to Zach, and he's like no thank you you know so um all right now we're gonna move on we're gonna move on to our next subject and it's a bit of a downer it's a bit of a downer but um you know shazam 2 was always going to be in a bit of a tough spot and you could kind of tell that uh, the writing on the wall wasn't great, you know, and 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 the the motivations for all of this, I don't know what they are, um, but like the fact that they weren't promoting it that much, it didn't get a Super Bowl spot. For a lot of people, they noticed even as recently as like a month ago, there really hadn't been a a major push to promote Shazam, but you know, two weeks ago. You know, people were kind of up in arms about the fact that now they started finally promoting it, but they showed the big DC cameo in it, you know, and this isn't a spoiler at this point, because it's if you've been anywhere near the Internet, you know that there are trailers, there are commercials, there are TV spots that show Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman in the movie, you know, and that kind of stuff just like it reeks of desperation. You know, it reminds me of the collective groan most of the world had when Batman v Superman, when trailer two came out and they revealed Doomsday and they revealed Wonder Woman and they revealed that the three of them, that the, the Trinity is going to work together against Doomsday by the end of the movie. You know, like when people realize that, like, wow, they just revealed what would have been the big third act surprise. It, it really comes off like desperation. It really comes off like, wow, you really don't think 
people are interested enough in this. So you have to pull back the curtain and go, look, but there's all this cool stuff. Look, we we have multiple heroes and multiple villains and we're setting up a bigger movie. You know, it really just reeks of like cynical pandering and trying to get your dollars for their for their franchise as opposed to here's this great movie with an intriguing premise and we have faith that what we're going to show you is going to whet your appetite and we're going to get you there in the theater and then we're going to blow you away with some big surprises you never saw coming like it doesn't seem like they had faith that there was enough of an appetite for a Batman versus Superman movie so when that trailer came out and it shows the big you know, which, by the way, a lot of people didn't even like the design of Doomsday. So why did they show that? It was like the anti-sales department. Here's Anton, the head of our anti-sales department. Um, you know, so this felt almost like, you know, seeing having them spoil that cameo in something as frivolous as a TV spot. Because, again, you could almost see them doing it maybe in like the Super Bowl spot where you have all these eyes on you and you know, Wonder Woman is a beloved figure. So maybe we do kind of show everyone that Wonder Woman pops up in this as a way to put some extra asses in the seats. But no, we're talking her. They show her in like these 30 second TV spots that play on TV. You know what I mean? In the YouTube ad that you click skip, to get past in those little tiny clips is where they're showing wonder woman and stuff. It just reeks of, of desperation and, you know, coming into this, this past weekend, you know, th there were serious concerns about Shazam too. The, the, the tracking, the, the, the box office projections were not looking great. Remember the first movie opened to around 60 million domestic and like a hundred and something million global and ultimately came in at like $366 million, which isn't great, but for a $100 million movie, it made a profit. It earned its sequel. It got like a 90% or something on Rotten Tomatoes from critics. So it was well-liked. The fans who did show up did enjoy it. So, you know, it was a, it was a win. It was a soft win, but it was a win. But the early projections for, for Shazam just spell trouble. You know, the early projections were that it was going to open to like 35 million. So even though the first film was well-received and well-liked, which usually means a sequel is going to open bigger, this one's actually shrinking. Okay, and that started getting all of the different um, armchair quarterbacks trying to analyze why it is that that's happening. And, you know, th th there are troubles with this movie that have been readily apparent for months now in that now that we know that there's no, you know, that these DC movies that we that are coming out this year are unlikely to spawn sequels and unlikely to continue on, there is a growing sense from people to just be like, eh, why do I need to bother with this? If there's not going to be a Shazam 3, if there's not going to be an Aquaman 3, if this doesn't all connect and is building towards something, then maybe I'll just sit all these out and wait for, you know, the DCU to start. You know, call me up when uh, Creature Commandos and Superman Legacy come out. You know, there, there are people who have sort of taken that, that vantage point, that look at it. But then there's also like, this movie was originally going to come out 
after the flash. And it was going to be interconnected with the flash in such a way that the world changing elements that occur in the flash were going to ripple over into Shazam 2 and even explain the new costumes. Like there was even something in Shazam 2 that now had to be cut that was going to explain why the suits have all changed. And it was all going to be part of everything that the Flash sort of retcons and resets. But now that they've augmented all the release dates and things got delayed and things got shuffled, now it's coming out before the Flash. So they had to cut that scene out. And who knows what other bits of connective tissue from the Flash they have since had to cut out since they are now releasing it before the Flash. You know, you can't release it. You can't keep those things in there now. They wouldn't make sense anymore, you know? So you have a movie that got tinkered with in post to remove its connections to the larger universe. You've got a friend, a, a, a fan base that feels like maybe we shouldn't bother with this because it's not going to go anywhere. And you have, you know, a story that the trailer, the initial trailer didn't do much to sell me. Remember, I uh, on just the last episode, if you go back to 178, I say very clearly, I'm not, I wasn't really interested in Shazam 2. I wasn't feeling it. I'm going to see it and I'm actually, I'm seeing it tomorrow. So I intend on giving you a full review of Shazam Fury of the Gods on episode 180 this Friday. But I, I was going to see it more so out of like a commitment and for the fact that my kids were interested and now the party's actually kind of grown a little bit. I'm bringing my mom, which is pretty cool. Uh, she enjoyed the first Shazam. So the four of us are going to go to IMAX tomorrow, me, my two eldest and my mom to see Shazam. So listen, that's going to be neat. And I'm looking forward to sharing my thoughts on that whole experience with you. But those trailers did not do much to make me go, oh, wow, I must see this movie. That premise, that the way they're presenting this story, this looks like something I absolutely cannot miss. You know, that, that, that was just missing from the marketing. You know, so Shazam coming into its opening weekend it wasn't looking like things were going to go that great. And well, now that I'm recording this on Monday night, I can tell you they didn't go so great. In fact, it didn't even hit its dismal $35 million projected domestic opening. It barely hit $30 million, Okay. It barely hit 30 million and made, you know, pennies overseas, even with a day and date wide release, even in China, where the first one did pretty well, people just collectively shrugged at Shazam. I think so far it has made something like, like worldwide, it's under a hundred million, might even be under 80 million. Like it, it had a, a phenomenally crappy opening weekend and it's upsetting to see and it's upsetting to hear you know because everyone that i know who's actually seen it says it's a good movie it's weird i, I know rotten tomatoes paints a different story you know rotten tomatoes now is at like 53 percent on the film so i know that there it's become more like take it or leave it 
you know, it's a 50, 50 proposition proposition. Half the people recommend it. Half the people don't. Uh, I haven't seen anyone whose opinion I value say anything bad about the movie. On the contrary, I've heard nothing but good things about this movie. And the fact that it's still open so low, it signals trouble. It signals trouble for these 2023 DC releases. Because it also, you kind of get the sense that like, word got out beyond the bubble of the reboot. You know, it got, it got out beyond our little internet bubble. You know, I always say that, you know, Twitter isn't real life and that the mainstream doesn't follow all these things as intently as the rest of us do. They don't know all the rumors. They don't know what's connected to what. They don't really necessarily care about the canon or the continuity. They just want to see good movies. You know, I've always said that, like, you know, the mainstream, the general public, doesn't really get invested in all of these little fanboy issues that all of us get so heated and passionate about. But in this case, it kind of seems like maybe they did get wind of the upcoming reboot and said, eh, then if that's the case, I'm not going to bother with Shazam 2. You know, there has to be something, I mean, there has to be something other than the crappy trailer like i'm trying to think what else would make it not sell well you know to the mainstream you know you have you have a lack of promotion and a trailer that is substandard i get that but it's still the sequel to a well-liked movie that has now had three years to gain more viewers on streaming you know what I mean? It, if the people who showed up to Shazam and gave it an A cinema score back in 2019 went home and showed their friends and their family and they all saw it on HBO Max and the fandom, the, the good positive buzz and word of mouth that usually happens with well-received movies happens, this movie would be opening to something bigger. But I don't think... like. I'm not saying that didn't happen. I think the word of mouth did happen. I think a lot of people did see Shazam and were pleasantly happy with what they saw, but they ultimately heard, oh, didn't you hear DCU's getting re DC's getting rebooted by James Gunn? So none of this matters anymore. And they all said, all right, I'm over it, you know? And you combine that with the fact that, again, the reviews aren't great. There does seem to be a slight sense of, you know, superhero fatigue. You know, even Marvel has not been immune from it. You know, Doctor Strange had an interesting relationship with the critics. Um, what is this one? The, uh, Aquaman. No, not Aquaman. Ant-Man Quantumania had, had an interesting relationship with critics. The box office has not been blowing anyone away lately on Superhero Fair. So there definitely does seem to be a little bit of the dreaded superhero fatigue that everyone's been talking about forever. I remember people were asking about, you know, are people going to get tired of superhero movies? Is there superhero fatigue? Back in like 2014, it was a quaint time. It was like shortly after like 
Avengers came out and Man of Steel came out and we you know we, we were hearing about all the different things Marvel was going to do next and we were hearing about DC's plans with BVS and Justice League all these different pundits and analysts had to come out with their own columns and podcasts and YouTube videos discussing well when is the bubble going to pop when is this trend going to end you know superheroes have been hot now ever since you know Sam Raimi's Spider-Man in 2002 and now they've reached insane popularity since 2008 with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Avengers doing two billion dollars so now you know there's only a matter of time before the bottom drops out on this and it's like well they weren't right 10 years ago when they were asking these questions, but they might be slowly becoming right now. You know, that that does seem to show that there does seem to be a disturbing trend line here with the superhero movies, with the comic book movies. And to me, I'm inclined to think that there's still a very healthy appetite for these kind of films. But I think by now audiences are growing a little more discerning. You know, you if you're going to get my ass in a theater post-COVID, you need to give me something that looks like a jaw-dropping experience that I'm never going to forget. You need to give me something that looks fresh and different and exciting or pushes your big story forward in some insane, new, unexpected way. You know, I, I feel like that's probably more than anything, what's going on in the marketplace. And some of these recent movies are not capturing people's uh, you know, imagination and making them fall over themselves to go support them anymore. Nowadays, we're reaching a place where if the stories and the characters are not as interesting as possible, they're not going to show up, you know? Um, so Shazam 2 didn't do so hot. David F. Sandberg is... Been on Twitter, kind of, David S. Sam, is it F? I think it's F. Uh, has been on Twitter, kind of, you know, sharing some kind of lamenting opinions about what it's been like to track all this. You know, he says he saw this coming, but, um, you know, it was somehow a little worse than he expected. He brought up the, the unfortunateness of the fact that, like, Shazam 2 is his lowest rated Rotten Tomatoes appearance, but his highest rated audience score. And he doesn't really get why the critics were so harsh on this as he thinks it was a good film, you know? And, he, and then he also has made mention of the fact that like he's looking to get back into the horror genre and, and into some other stuff that interests him because he really kind of just needs to step away from the superhero, from the discourse around superhero movies that it gets so negative and so sort of venomous and, and nasty that he's looking to take like a major break from superhero movies after Shazam Fury of the Gods. So, you know, it's a shame because he seems like a good guy. I, I've enjoyed, he's been a great follow on Twitter since 2018 when he was working on the first flat, uh, Shazam. And, you know, it's a shame to see him kind of just over all of this now and feeling like the discourse sucks my latest movie is not doing well and the critics are taking pot shots at it even though they loved the first one and i thought i was building a bigger better sequel for him and now they've all kind of turned on me like he just seems like you know he's had a bad weekend and this uh, Shazam 2 thing didn't necessarily do for him, I guess, what he thought it was going to do. And it didn't line up a, a, an exciting future gig for him, you know. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's sad. And going back one more time to just the trouble with Shazam 2, something that it had working against it even before it opened in theaters too, is, you know, the fact that Dwayne Johnson, yes, I'm, I'm going to bring Dwayne back. Sorry. Um, the fact that Dwayne Johnson was so adamant about not connecting his Black Adam movie to Shazam and the Shazam verse and building towards that event film where they come to blows, where they meet. Um, I think that hurt Shazam too also. You know, because for people who do know Shazam, for people who do give a crap about the character, you know, they know that his main antagonist is Black Adam. And what did we find out about Black Adam a few months ago? That they're not making more of those movies. So even if you don't know that Dwayne Johnson was not building towards a collision with Shazam, even if you don't know that, you know that, well, Black Adam is dead in the water. So if they're not even going to continue with Shazam's biggest villain, then clearly this movie isn't building towards anything all that exciting. What's a Shazam franchise that isn't in some way building towards a confrontation with Black Adam? You know, and that's again where like maybe instead of focusing so focusing so much on Superman versus Black Adam and 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 spoiling the surprise of Henry Cavill's return on the red carpet. Maybe instead of putting such a hard focus on that, maybe Dwayne Johnson and Seven Bucks Entertainment should have been working with David Sandberg on Shazam and putting together a plan that incorporated both characters for maximum intrigue building up for the next movie that sees the two of them coming toe to toe and face to face that might've given Shazam a little more urgency that might've given black Adam a little more urgency. Cause remember black Adam came out in October Shazam two comes out in March. That's only like five months apart. So if you were to like almost co-promote these movies as if they're part of some interconnected story and these two huge forces are going to come to blows after these next two stories, you know, you might have had more people show up to Black Adam. You know, the Superman angle clearly was not enough to make people go and run out to theaters to see it. But to see Black Adam face his actual arch nemesis or conversely to see shazam fight his arch nemesis and knowing that these stories are somehow working together in the grand tapestry of things and maybe are somehow you were going to see some connections to all that in the flash and this and that you know it might have helped black adam's box office and if black adam's box office had done great that that momentum would have carried over into shazam fury of the gods because okay now that is you know, this is the next step of the story. We had Shazam 1, we have Black Adam, we have Shazam 2, and now we have Shazam versus Black Adam with special appearance by Superman. You know, they could have, like, built all of this to be a better machine. You know, they could have built a better sort of plan and outlined it for fans in a clearer way through the marketing that maybe Black Adam does better and Shazam does better. But Black Adam, 
had no interest in Shazam. And then when he went the way of the Dodo, Shazam 2 was left with these villains that don't have any comic book lore to refer to, don't have a, a built-in fan base for people dying to see, oh, we're going to see Shazam versus such and such and such and such. That's going to be cool. No, that, that element wasn't built in. So you weren't exactly getting the hardcores all excited. And then you have the people who, again, you know, Black Adam is dead in the water. So this Shazam movie is really kind of like, what is this leading towards? Especially if you heard that they just brought in James Gunn to reboot everything. What is the point of seeing all of this? I'll just wait till it comes to HBO, you know? So Shazam 2 did worse than expected. That is a shame. And, uh, but I am looking forward to seeing the movie. You know, the, the, that is, you can't put a price on good word of mouth. And the fact that, you know, everyone I see online, everyone whose opinion I value, and that's the thing. And it sounds like I'm, I'm saying that there are people who have crapped on the movie and that I just don't value their opinion. No, that hasn't even happened. I haven't seen any vocal outcry. This isn't like when Morbius came out last year. And even without seeing the movie, you could hear from all walks of the world, people trashing it, talking about, yikes, this was an abject disaster. Nobody's talking about Shazam Fury of the Gods as a disaster. Everyone's saying it's a good and fun and bigger, better sequel to the first one. Everyone's saying it plants interesting seeds for what, you know, where they could go next. And that's the thing, too, that like we have to show up for these movies if we want more. Okay. With any of these, people have to understand that, though, too, because money talks. Okay. If Black Adam had even knocked on the door of a billion, if it got anywhere near 900 million, I don't think there's any way Warner Brothers Discovery lets Gun kill it. You know, I don't think there's any way they shut down the sequels and, and, and Henry Cavill returning to Clash with Black Adam. I don't think there's any way that that doesn't continue on if it did well at the box office. Because at the end of the day, money is the most important thing. This is a business. This is a studio. They have shareholders. They have a board of directors. They have all kinds of people with vested interests in getting the turning the highest profit possible on each of these properties. So if Black Adam had been some runaway smash hit holy crap, who saw that coming kind of situation, like what happened with Deadpool in 2016, like what happened with Venom a couple years later. Remember, critics hated Venom, but it made almost a billion. So guess what? We got a Venom 2, and there's a Venom 3 coming because that one made a lot of money too. So it's like at the end of the day, the critics can take a long walk off a short pier. If the, if the fans show up, and they vote with their dollars, I don't think these movies go away forever, especially since there is an Elseworld, right? Gunn has already revealed that there will be a secondary banner within DC Studios for Elseworld stories, and that's where Matt Reeves' Batman's going to be. That's where Joaquin Phoenix's Joker movies take place. You know, there is a whole separate 
banner for stories that don't fit in to the DCU. And that is where these could all go. If Black Adam had made it, there's no way that we would not have seen the next bits of this continue on in the Elseworld. Same thing with Shazam. You know, I hear Shazam has some interesting post-credit teases. And unfortunately, now the fact that the fact that it opened as low as it did, it turns those teases into nothing. Those teases become just like the teases at the end of Justice League 2017. It's that all over again. Remember at the end of Justice League 2017, where we see they, 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 they're going to turn Wayne Manor essentially into the, into the Hall of Justice and, you know, a table for seven with room for more. And then the big tease of the Legion of Doom at the end of the credits and all of that meant dick. None of it went anywhere because the movie only opened to $91 million. It basically, you know, flopped. It fell on its face. The first ever Justice League movie failed to capture the mainstream audience's attention when it came out, which is insane to think about to this day. And it's a sore spot and I don't want to think about it. But like if that movie had done great, by the way, we would have gotten the Legion of Doom. We would have, you know, money talks at the end of the day. And I'm only bringing this up because as we go on now through 2023, if you're someone who's a fan of these other DCEU things, you're going to have to show up and vote with your dollars. Right now, you've been doing that. You voted for Black Adam to lose. With Shazam 2, you voted for Shazam 2 to lose. By not showing up in droves to these movies, You've more or less guaranteed that they cannot continue, you know, and I can't put it entirely on fans, obviously, because the big thing is luring in those mainstream viewers. None of this happens on its own. None of this can happen without the mainstream, without the casuals, without the normies being inspired to come to the theater. But they didn't even come. So if they don't show up, and then even the hardcore people can only muster a $30 million opening. There's no reason to pander to them. There's no reason to cater to these people. And it makes James Gunn look right for wanting to close the door on the previous chapter of DC. For wanting to turn the page and begin a whole new story and basically start from scratch. You know, all it does is solidify James Gunn's logic that he surely... Presented to David Zaslav after war after Black Adam crashed. He's like, listen, the current run of films, it's gonna be hit or miss. We're gonna be hoping for good outcomes, but you know, the current state of DC on film is such that we are in a bad spot, and it's going to be better for us to just start over again. You know, Black Adam showed that. And now Shazam is like further proof because again, if Shazam had captured people's imaginations and did crazy business, if all these DC fans who've been doing all their crying ass bitching online the last few months about the death of the DCEU and the incoming reboot, if they had shown up to support Shazam, 
and Shazam became one of these big runaway successes, guess what? There would be a Shazam 3. There's no way you turn down that kind of money. You just, it doesn't happen. But instead, we're voting, all right? We're voting these things out of office. So just keep that in mind. Um, <clears throat> now I want to talk about Superman and Lois, which came back last week. That's right. Season three kicked off. Sorry. <clears throat> um. Season three kicked off last week with episode one. And now with every episode of the fanboy podcast, you can expect a bit of a, a reaction, a review, so to speak, of each episode of Superman and Lois, just as we did last year. Brett and I were doing that. We're going to be doing that this year. Uh, but for now, obviously, it's just me alone. So here are my thoughts on uh, episode one of season three of Superman and Lois. Look, I thought... It was uh, a perfect little table setter. You know, sometimes the first episode in a season of any show, all it really has to do is set the table. It's going to show us all the things to come. It's going to give us a look at each of the main characters and a small glimpse of what their arc is going to be this season. It's a little bit of like, it's like a sampler plate. You know, here's a little bit of what Clark is up to. Here's what John Henry Irons is doing. Ooh, we've got Lana as the mayor of Smallville and what's going on there. Oh, we've got Kyle, now a newly single man. And what's going to go on there with him and his family dynamic and moving on. And oh, we've got Sam Lane talking to John Henry's daughter and this. And we have John Henry's daughter, you know, trying to figure out what her future is going to be. And she's this brilliant mind and maybe would love to work for the Department of Defense. But her father wants her to have a more traditional life and get away from all of that stuff and just make friends and she you know, like with every one of the characters we're given a glimpse you know with jordan we're seeing his further development as superboy and and how clark is training him and what the do's and don'ts are so far of superhero dumb for jordan we got this yeah so far it seems like jonathan our new jonathan by the way the new actor he seems to be the only one like in that in that first episode he was the only one who wasn't seemingly wasn't given like a long range story arc you know what i mean it was very much like a, an in episode story arc where it's all about you know his stress leading up to the road test followed by the relief of passing it and getting his license and how great that is to turn 16 and now have a, you know, ha have a, a set of wheels, you know? Um, and he had that great line and there's a great, first of all, him and the Jordan and Jonathan have a great chemistry. You know, th this new actor stepped right in and that's very important to me. It was more important that he connects with Jordan than with anyone else. And when they had the scene on the porch, it felt like brothers talking to me. It felt like, yeah, because it's a tough task too. You know, for that actor, you're coming in on like a legit sort of like family environment. These people have worked insane hours together across two seasons of creating television. They survived making Superman during COVID, okay? Like these people have, um, they've bonded. They've come together over the years and he's stepping in and this could have been a tall order and it could have been a mismatch. He might've stuck out like a sore thumb in some way, but the good news is he meshed in real nice. He got along real well with Jordan. 
I believe their their relationship as brothers. But he has that great line in there about like, you know, let's face it, Jordan, you know, you can fly. You don't have to worry about your a car getting around or any of that. This is going to be my one ticket to actually having some freedom. This is going to be how I get around because I'm just a human. You know? So he had a line just kind of, ex you know, explaining that logic. And I enjoyed that, too, because it's true. What the hell does Jordan need a driver's license for? He never needs to fly anywhere again. I mean, he never, never needs to drive anywhere again. But um, but yeah, so as, as a first episode goes, sort of giving us a small taste of where everyone's headed, I thought it was very effective. I would have loved to have seen a little more Superman. You know, it seemed like he was a little bit on the back burner for this episode. They, fo you know, they focused more so on Clark. But you know, there's maybe like two or three key Superman moments throughout the episode. And clearly with the final stuff, the stuff with Bruno Mannheim, like we're, we're going to get into it in the episodes to come, right? With the, the, the bigger story and the intergang and all that kind of intrigue. But for, uh, for the first episode, you know, I would have loved to have had a little more Superman action in there. But as a table setter, I thought it was great. Um, the stuff between Clark and Lois with the tease about whether or not she's pregnant was really intriguing. Um, and the, the, the impact on their relationship and how like, you know, it was just, I, I love this Lois and Clark and how much they love each other. The chemistry between Bitsy Tullock and uh, Tyler Hoechlin is just great. You know, and, and this idea that like they sneak off, to tell to tell's um you know his brother his half brother's villa sometimes for little trysts in the middle of the day i'm like wow good for you guys they found a little second honeymoon phase there after uh all of the insanity last season um so yeah i don't want to get too far into spoilers in case some of you have not yet seen episode one i don't want to talk about how the uh pregnancy thing resolves itself especially since i'm not sure it quite resolves itself if you know what i mean i think maybe we get a bit of a, a misdirection at the end of the first episode i think there's going to be more to that and more will be revealed in the episodes to come there's a lot of intrigue especially because we're going to metropolis now and i'm liking that you know this has been a superman series that has spent an alarmingly short amount of time in Metropolis. So uh, the fact that, you know, we have Lois there and we have Bruno Mannheim lurking in the shadows and some of the previews of what's to come show Superman doing a lot of stuff amongst those skyscrapers has me feel like, wow, we're actually going to get into Metropolis this season. And I'm excited to see that. And I'm excited to see how the, how the intergang thing is handled. You know, what is going to be their reinvention of the Superman mythology there? You know, Superman and Lois has done a great job through two seasons of taking things that we're familiar with as Superman fans, but presenting them in new ways, you know? So I'm very intrigued to see how Intergang works out. I really enjoyed the scene with Clark and Lois where he's talking to her about how, you know, we investigated Mannheim. We tried our best and we could never find anything that would stick to the guy. He's essentially been like a Teflon criminal who they, they could never ring him up on charges. They could never catch him red handed doing something dirty. 
And that intrigues me because I feel like surely Superman could, right? If Clark was going around as Superman using his super hearing and using the X-ray vision and just basically surveilling Bruno Mannheim all day, you'd have to think he would find some dirt on the guy. But it leads me to believe that, you know, that Superman likes to follow the due process, the due process of law. You know, and and same thing with journalism. You don't publish a story unless it can be verified, you know, two or three times over from multiple sources. And so if all the story would be is, well, Superman says Bruno Mannheim is bad because he observed it. Um, you know, that's not really a way that you're going to get Bruno Mannheim behind bars in this fictional world. You actually have to catch him in the in the act you have to catch him red-handed you need to find a paper trail you need to get a witness who'll corroborate that he's done x y or z and it's interesting that lois and clark two of the most intrepid reporters the daily planet has ever had apparently put time into trying to get bruno take bruno down and they were never able to find anything that would actually do that despite clark being secretly superman so that's that that's intriguing to me too to be like well what what caliber of criminal is Mannheim that he you know even with these two uh you know watchful these two sets of watchful eyes on him he's still able to uh get away with it and not be busted and operate in the shadows you know so I'm intrigued to see about Bruno Mannheim and Metropolis and Intergang and all of that I know we got Lex Luthor coming up. Michael Cudlitz's Lex Luthor. They released a first look last week of him, and he looks pretty deranged and pretty stressful. Um, he's already he's in prison. You see him in like a, a jumpsuit sort of thing, and he's bald and crazy looking. So, uh, yeah, you know, all I could say for now for episode one of season three is I really enjoyed it. I would have liked a little more Superman. I'm intrigued by all of the different things they're setting up. Um, although, you know, I just hope that the story doesn't get too further splintered off because, you know, we had maybe like four main characters in the first, you know, in the first season. It felt like it was really it was it was Clark and Lois and the two boys, you know, and you had the supporting players. But those were our four main stories. This time around, it's like, you know, there's the Lois and Clark story. There's whatever Superman's going to be dealing with, you know, as part of the larger superhero crisis that this season is going to factor into. You have Lana as the mayor of Smallville and some of the intricacies of that that she's finding already where the former mayor came and yada, yada, yada. Um, you've got John Henry and the daughter who are having their own interesting stuff where John Henry is still trying to, I guess, sort of like assimilate into a type of like normal life here. And he wants his daughter to do the same, but you have this brilliant young girl who can do all of these incredible things. And you kind of get the sense that she thinks maybe she's destined for something more than just a regular life. You've got Sam Lane and the dynamic now with her where on another earth, he's her grandfather. So he tries to use that relationship to affect, to try to basically like, you know, it's, it seems like he also sees in her 
what we as an audience sees in her. And he agrees that maybe she shouldn't just be going to high school and making friends and having a normal life. Maybe she should be using those powers for good, you know, and it's intriguing too for, for, for Lane, because every season we, we are kind of like, we go on a bit of a roller coaster ride with Lois's dad, where for some of the season, we're like, is he a douchebag? And then by the end, we're like, okay, okay. He's got a good heart and his heart's in the right place. So we, we like you, Sam, don't worry. You know, and this episode had a little bit of that too, where you start off loving him off, loving him and his Hawaiian shirt and his, you know, kind of quirky uh, general Sam Lane way of carrying himself. But then we see that he does seemingly kind of maybe take advantage of his time with I'm so bad with John Henry's daughter's character's name. I forget. But you know, you see that maybe he is a little too self-interested and not thinking about her well-being. And he's also he's not thinking, he's not respecting John Henry's wishes. So once again, we have this dynamic where he looks borderline douchebaggy. But, you know, but we know he means well at the end of the day. You know, we, we, so we're still kind of playing that little cat and mouse game with whether or not Sam Lane is, can just be trusted to be the good guy who does the right thing all the time, you know. But, um, but yeah, but like with all and then you even got Kyle who now, you know, he shacked up with somebody this episode. He shacked up with the editor in chief of the Smallville Gazette, which I don't think anybody saw coming. You know, and you've got the issue with between Sarah and Jordan, where, yes, you on the one end, you've got Jordan training to basically be the, you know, be, be Superboy, <laughs> who we couldn't hear. Right. We have Jordan basically training to be Superboy. But we also have the dynamic with him and Sarah, where he's still obviously in love with her, but she just wants to be friends. And there was drama around that. It just seems like from four main characters, we've gone more to like six or seven. And each half of each pair has their own story going on, you know? So I just hope this season doesn't get a little too sort of bogged down by all of that, you know? But, um, but all in all, you know, I think we're off to a good start. Um, you know, it was a table setter. It could have been a little more exciting. There could have been a little more of a, holy crap, they're doing what? You know, it wasn't like a wow factor season premiere, but it was a good table setter. And I'm excited to see where they're going next. Um, but yes, this Friday, I'll be sure to share with you my thoughts on episode two. Um, on episode 180 of this show. But, uh, you know, I've got another topic or two, but I think I'm going to save it because I am almost at two hours and I know I wanted to make up for uh, making you wait. So there you go. I gave you a supersized episode 179 of the Fanboy Podcast. Um, stay tuned later this week for episode 180, which will include my review of Shazam Fury of the Gods, as well as some discussion about the uh, so some stuff sent in by you all. I've got some topics that you all have sent in that I'm, you know, I, I was going to try to touch on here. But again, we're at almost two hours. 
it's time to wrap this puppy up. So in the meantime, if you want to get me a topic or a question or something to to cover on one on episode 180 or any future episode, be sure to send it to the fanboy podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow the show on the Twitter at the fanboy show. Be sure to follow me on the Twitter at Superman on film. Just like that. All one word, no punctuation, just Superman on film. And uh, that's it. I hope it was worth the wait. And I hope to have Brett have Brett back soon. But this has been a lot of fun to record. Thank you for being with me. And until next time, be kind and stay fanboy. Adios.